How y'all doing that? So like, thank y'all for stopping by for another episode of this Removing the Illusion podcast. Man, look at here. Now y'all know before we get to talking about what we're going to talk about tonight, got to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. You know, these good, one of these good old cigar sticks I got here. Tonight, I'm smoking on a Lee Aroma de Cuba Maya Amora. Man, let me tell you here. Now this is a very interesting stick here. The reason why it's interesting is because earlier today, one of my cigar buddies, you know, they tonight, uh, today rather, you know, we had poker, had poker day today, and uh, one of my cigar buddies called me a little earlier, and he wanted me to this in this new Cuban restaurant out here in the shores out here, so it's called Mary Cuban Restaurant. So we goes on up there, you know, and get some of that good old Cuban food, you know, and on the wall it had this picture, and the picture that was on the wall. It's the same picture that's on this rapper, Lee Aroma de Cuba Maya Amora. Man, let me say So I looked at that picture, I told him, but I said, I said, hey man, look, that image right there, ain't that a band on the cigar? It's like, yeah. That's that uh Cuba Maya Amora, Lee Aroma. You know, Rod's got those up there at, at the cigar spot. I was like, man, I thought I seen that band look familiar. Excuse me. So I decided to get me one. So I went on up the rise before I went to the whole game. I got me one of these little good old sticks here, and I took it on over there to the Cuban spot there. I mean, not the Cuban spot, but to the whole game. Now, I ain't smoking then, there because I was still smoking on one of my Padron 4000s. Still been enjoying that. So today, I, I fired, on, fired up this Lee Aroma. And man, let me tell you something. This show is a good stick. Now, let me tell y'all a little about this stick here. Now, this Lee Aroma. These little aroma de Cuba Maya Mora is a handcrafted Don Pepeon Garcia's Nicaraguan factory. Man, this thing utilizes a dark, toothy Cuban seed wrapper grown in Mexico and a robust Nicaraguan long filler blend. Maya Aroma offers a rich, medium to full body profile, breathing with notes of earth, cocoa, espresso, spices, and smooth, semi sweet finish. Complex, flavorful. Balanced and perfectly constructed, Lee Aroma de Cuba Amora is thoroughly satisfying. And let me tell y'all something here. Now, y'all know I like to read this stuff here, but I'm going to tell y'all my little opinion. This is this show is a nice little smooth stick. Now, it's kind of like a medium to full blend. You know, it has that, uh, the, it has a shape of a, what they call that, Bellicosco or Churchill, Gordo, Robusto, Turo. You know, those different kind of shapes you can get it in. The wrapper is a San Andreas. And the origin, the origin is Nicaragua. Man, this is a good stick, man. Now, see, I usually like a stick like this here, especially after I eat. You know, after I get a good meal, then I like me, you know, a medium to full body cigar. Usually, you know, when I'm on, when I'm just smoking, I prefer some medium where I can enjoy. But this is a good after meal cigar here, man. Sure enjoying this stick here. If you go to my website, take a look at my website. And you can see what this uh, Lee Aroma de Cuba Maya Morris cigar looks like. Good stick here, man. I'm going to tell you something. I sure been enjoying myself here, lady. And I sure, I sure enjoyed that Cuban restaurant, too. Down here in Florida, man, we got some good food. Matter of fact, <coughs> excuse me. Matter of fact, up in um, Tampa is a, I can't, I, I can't pronounce these words, but they got a good uh, Dominican Republic. Uh, Dominican uh, restaurant down there in Tampa. I can't think of that name. But I'm trying to get that name, but you know, sort of on the lines of Cuban, the Cuban food. 
But they have that like uh matter of fact it matter of fact it is Cuban food. I'm not talking about on the line. I just can't think of the name, but it is a Cuban restaurant. Because they got that good milkshake. I like a papaya. Man, if y'all ever had a papaya milkshake, man, that thing there is so good. But when we was at Mary's, you know, Mary's had dad up to they didn't have no papayas because they say she couldn't find any papayas around here just just directly. So they had a couple other milkshakes that I kind of tried there. And they were really good. And they said really good good milkshakes because they're kind of healthy for you because they use that real fruit. And like the kind of milkshakes y'all get at McDonald's, Burger King, and stuff like that. These some real good fruity milk, milkshakes with some natural fruit in them. So, man, I've just been enjoying this Cuban food here lately. Uh... I had these things, I had these things, they kind of look like mozzarella sticks, but they got like chicken, you get chicken in the inside, you can, get, you can get beef in the inside. And I had me one of them good old Cuban sandwiches, man. Golly, man. And that toasted bread. Man, that thing was so good. I can't eat them every day, though. Much as much I want to. But that's going to be my little weekend treat. I'll treat myself. I'm going to go on up there because it's not too far from where I live. I'm going up there to Mary's Cuban restaurant. Oh, them Cuban got some good food. But I'm going to try to get the name of that place down there in Tampa. When we usually go down to Cigar Set Castle, the third uh, Saturday of the month for Cigars and Omelet, we usually go to a Cigar Castle, and then we may go to another spot, Cigar Spot called uh, Blue Torch. And right around right, the right around from Blue Torch is this Cuban restaurant. Montessori, Monte Crisco. So I can't think of the name right now. I'm going to get that name on one of the little pod talks. I'm going to tell you what the name is. If y'all ever down in Tampa, I want y'all to stop by this Cuban restaurant. And you know what? They don't speak no English in that. You know, but we happen to get one little waitress. She can speak enough English to take our order. But let me tell you something, man. Good atmosphere, man. Real. It's almost like when you, it's like, it's, it's like you're stepping in Latin America when you're stepping to that place, man. People are nice and friendly too, man. And the food is just fantastic, man. So I've really been enjoying me some good Cuban food here lately. Really taking a good hankering to it too. So, man, look. Hey, but tonight, what I want to talk about tonight is, I want to talk about a thing called cheap money. Uh, matter of fact, uh, how this thing here came to me was a few Thursdays ago, when we was down in Gainesville, on the way back from Gainesville, I was driving back, and I so happened to put YouTube, you know, on, on my little on my little car thing there, and I was listening to YouTube, and it and it got the it got it got on this subject, got on this subject about the real estate market in Germany, you know, a lot of things that our media don't show us, and we don't rightly want to pay too much attention to. You know about what's going on in the rest of the world. Like we thought, the financial crisis of two thousand eight only affected America. We only we only thought that the housing boom, you know, these bad mortgages, subprime mortgages, and all this stuff right here was only affecting America. But it didn't only hit America; it hit England and also hit Germany too. But this particular YouTube show, it was about Germany. Right, and the after effects after 2008, and also show some parts of England too, and it also gave me a good understanding of what's going on around here in the United States, and also in my particular parts here with all this growth that I'm that I'm seeing, you know, because they say like uh, now, you know, we experiencing a build, you know, they building everything now. You see apartment complexes, houses complexes going up, everything. But see, the reason why all these things is happening now is because of what the feds did. If you go back and listen to my previous podcast about the Federal Reserve, right, you'll learn a little something about what's going on now. And what's going on now is, is the after effects of 2008 
some of the things that the Federal Reserve and the International Mutual Fund, some of these bankers put in place to kind of ward off uh, uh, a sort of like a depression, not depression, but kind of ward off depression and to stimulate growth. That's why you have all these, uh, that's why you have all, not subprime mortgages, you have all these zero interest mortgages. You know, right now, cheap. Well, you know what? I'm not going to get off into it. I'm on, you know, I want y'all to take a listen to this thing here on cheap money. And after that, I'm going to come back and talk to y'all about this thing because it gave me a really good understanding of what I'm seeing today. You know, I'm seeing all these growths, all these businesses pop up, all these businesses buying other businesses, you know, all these corporate, not corporate takeover, but businesses buying businesses and consolidating their businesses. You know, where is they getting all this money, you know, to do this thing from? So um, I'm trying not to say too much because I don't want to get away. But look here, y'all go ahead. And y'all take a listen to this. I'm going to catch up with y'all on the flip side. I'm going to sit back here and I'm going to smoke my La Roma de Cuba Mayora, my Amora. Sit back here and smoke my stick. Then I'm going to come back on the flip side and talk to y'all. We're going we gonna to take a And I'm telling y'all, man, y'all got to learn about this money thing. Y'all got to learn about this money thing. You know, y'all got to learn. But you know what? Y'all listen to this thing. I'm going to come back and talk to y'all on the flip side. All right now. Cheap money. Definition. What is cheap money? Cheap money is a loan or credit with a low interest rate or the setting of low interest rates by a central bank like the Federal Reserve. Cheap money is money that can be borrowed with a very low interest rate or price for borrowing. Cheap money is good for borrowers, but bad for investors, who will see the same low interest rates on investments like savings accounts, money market funds, CDs, and bonds. Cheap money can potentially have detrimental economic consequences as borrowers take on excessive leverage if the borrower is eventually unable to pay all of the loans back. Breaking down cheap money. When money is cheap, it is a good time for borrowers to take on new debt or consolidate existing debts. The borrower can take out new loans at a lower cost of borrowing, or interest rate, than the previous loans. They can then use the new loan money to pay off the old loans. This is a way of refinancing debt and ends up costing the borrower a lower fee for interest over the life of the loan, saving them money. Regardless of how cheap money becomes, a borrower should always be careful that they can pay back the loan, even if rates happen to go up. Taking out cheap loans with low payments based on a low introductory interest rate, which then ballooned was one of the catalysts of the global financial crisis of 2008. When borrowers couldn't afford to make their payments after the interest rate reset and their payments increased, structured products backed by those loans imploded. Bad debt, fueled by a desire for cheap money, brought down the economy. Cheap money and monetary policy. In theory, cheap money is supposed to boost struggling economies by making it more affordable for consumers and businesses to borrow money. The cheaper loans are, the more money people will borrow to buy homes and vehicles, start new businesses, and undertake other ventures that will gird the economy. However, cheap money puts more money into circulation, which can contribute to inflation, because it drives up prices. Higher prices equal higher inflation. As a result, if an economy is too strong, central bankers will raise interest rates to combat inflation. Cheap money in practice. Although cheap money should, in theory, encourage private borrowing and spending, consumers have been more reluctant to borrow money since the 2008 recession, perhaps because most consumers continue to carry more debt than they did before the recession. 
the use of cheap money successfully mitigated the lows of the Great Recession and boosted recovery in the US and Japan. However, economies remain sluggish, and the use of cheap money as a stopgap measure to boost a struggling post-recession economy has become a more permanent arrangement. Economists warn that governments should increase deficits to protect against the effects of the next recession, which could come when interest rates remain low. Addiction to cheap money will depress economies in Europe and the US. Responding to the 2008-09 global financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis that followed, central banks in the US and Europe cut interest rates aggressively, and conducted quantitative easing QE, an unorthodox policy of buying government and corporate bonds on a massive scale to keep asset markets from collapsing. Mario Draghi, then governor of the European Central Bank ECB, famously said that he will do whatever it takes to end the crisis. The result was a flood tide of cheap, and in some instances, free money. These extraordinary measures were supposed to be temporary. Once the situation has stabilized, interest rates are supposed to be normalized and QE ceases. But interest rates were never normalized in the Eurozone. A decade later, the same Draghi, now getting ready to hand the reins over to Christine Lagarde, announced on September 12 that he is holding the refinancing rate at zero, cutting the ECB's deposit rate from minus 0.4% to minus 0.5%, yes, negative 0.5%, and restarting QE, even though the ECB is currently holding an unprecedented amount of member government's debt. The first step in rehabilitating alcoholics is to get them to admit that they are alcoholics. The same is true for curing the addiction to cheap money in an economy. Today, Europe, Japan, and the US are dangerously addicted to cheap money. Not only is there no admission of the addiction, the central banks in these economies are set to maintain low or zero interest rates indefinitely. As a consequence, about one quarter of sovereign and corporate bonds worldwide, Bloomberg data show, are trading with an implied yield below zero. Today in, Asia. The US Federal Reserve's failure to normalize interest rates illustrates the depth of the addiction. The Fed started raising interest rates in December 2015, after keeping its benchmark Fed funds rate at 0.25%, effectively zero, for seven years. By December 2018, it had climbed to 2.5%, about half of what it was before the global financial crisis. But even such a low rate was deemed too high for the fragile US economy, raising concerns over rising recessionary risks. Donald Trump's accusation that the Federal Reserve was sabotaging the economy by raising interest rates did not help. On July 31, the Fed threw in the towel and cut the rate by a quarter of a percentage point to reassure the market, followed by another similar cut on September 19, signaling the end of normalization. As mentioned above, the ECB did not even bother with normalization. With Christine Lagarde taking over at the helm, the ECB is likely to become even more attuned to European government's need for cheap money. With the Eurozone economies flirting with recession, zero interest rate and QE are here to stay. Loose monetary policy is extremely harmful to the market economy. It distorts one of the most important price signals that allocates capital in the economy, the price of money. It poisons the business operating environment by allowing weak and failing companies to carry on using cheap credit. As such, this halts the creative destruction process that should lie at the heart of a market economy. Struggling businesses that can stay alive only because of the life support of cheap money do not operate with healthy profit margins, 
hence they do not contribute to income and employment generation. But they make it harder for successful businesses to expand and create new jobs. The economy is made weaker and more unstable as a result. QE allows national governments in the Eurozone to hide their debt by transferring their unsustainable liabilities to the ECB. QE also props up asset prices, masking the problem created by mounting corporate debts and their deteriorating quality. This has opened a widening gap between financial markets and the real economy. It has come to light that much of the corporate borrowing in the US in the last decade has been recycled into share buybacks and dividend payments to the benefits of senior executives and shareholders. QE in the Eurozone has kept the banking system afloat, which has also benefited the senior executives of the financial sector and their shareholders. It is the real economy that has been left behind, a divide that is tearing apart Europe's social fabric, fueling the rise of populism. Zero and negative interest rates also hurt ordinary savers, the rank and file of working people who tend to save by depositing their cash with banks. Many European banks now charge their customers to keep money in their bank accounts. Instead of being rewarded, savers are punished. According to the Germany's Bundesbank, there are close to 5 trillion euros, 5.6 trillion dollars, of private savings in Germany. Should interest rates be set at 5% instead of zero, German savers would earn 250 billion euros a year from their savings. Even if only half of this amount is spent by German households, the German economy would have been more recession-proof than it is today. And it is doubly ironic that the same central bankers that argued for the need for zero interest rate and more QE are also complaining that German consumers are not spending enough to help the economy from sliding into a recession. At the most fundamental level, interest rates reflect the value of money over time. When money is productively deployed in the economy, it generates returns that are reflected in positive interest rates. Thus, when central banks set rates at zero, they are signaling that the time value of money is also zero, thus signaling a stagnant economy ahead. Addiction to cheap money becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, a weak economy needs cheap money, which keeps the economy depressed. It is now more urgent than ever that the developed economies acknowledge that cheap money is the problem, not the solution. Now, let's take a quick glance at the economic consequences of cheap money. From a memorandum, dated April 24, 1946, prepared in English by Professor Mises for a committee of businessmen for whom he served as a consultant, this article appears in the causes of the economic crisis, and other essays before and after the Great Depression, 2006, as Chapter 5, The Trade Cycle and Credit Expansion, The Economic Consequences of Cheap Money. The author of this paper is fully aware of its insufficiency. Yet, there is no means of dealing with the problem of the trade cycle in a more satisfactory way if one does not write a treatise embracing all aspects of the capitalist market economy. The author fully agrees with the dictum of Bohm-Bawerk, a theory of the trade cycle, if it is not to be mere botching, can only be written as the last chapter or the last chapter but one of a treatise dealing with all economic problems. It is only with these reservations that the present writer presents this rough sketch to the members of the committee. The unpopularity of interest. One of the characteristic features of this age of wars and destruction is the general attack launched by all governments and pressure groups against the rights of creditors. The first act of the Bolshevik government was to abolish loans and payment of interest altogether. The most popular of the slogans that swept the Nazis into power was Brechen der Zinsnikjaft, abolition of interest slavery. 
The debtor countries are intent upon expropriating the claims of foreign creditors by various devices, the most efficient of which is foreign exchange control. Their economic nationalism aims at brushing away an alleged return to colonialism. They pretend to wage a new war of independence against the foreign exploiters as they venture to call those who provided them with the capital required for the improvement of their economic conditions. As the foremost creditor nation today is the United States, this struggle is virtually directed against the American people. Only the old usages of diplomatic reticence make it advisable for the economic nationalists to name the devil they are fighting not the Yankees, but Wall Street. Wall Street is no less the target at which the monetary authorities of this country are directing their blows when embarking upon an easy money policy. It is generally assumed that measures designed to lower the rate of interest, below the height at which the unhampered market would fix it, are extremely beneficial to the immense majority at the expense of a small minority of capitalists and hard-biled money lenders. It is tacitly implied that the creditors are the idle rich while the debtors are the industrious poor. However, this belief is atavistic and utterly misjudges contemporary conditions. In the days of Solon, Athens's wise legislator, in the time of ancient Rome's agrarian laws, in the Middle Ages and even for some centuries later, one was by and large right in identifying the creditors with the rich and the debtors with the poor. It is quite different in our age of bonds and debentures, of savings banks, of life insurance and social security. The proprietary classes are the owners of big plants and farms, of common stock, of urban real estate and, as such, they are very often debtors. The people of more modest income are bondholders, owners of saving deposits and insurance policies and beneficiaries of social security. As such, they are creditors. Their interests are impaired by endeavors to lower the rate of interest and the national currency's purchasing power. It is true that the masses do not think of themselves as creditors and thus sympathize with the non-creditor policies. However, this ignorance does not alter the fact that the immense majority of the nation are to be classified as creditors and that these people, in approving of an easy money policy, unwittingly hurt their own material interests. It merely explodes the Marxian fable that a social class never errs in recognizing its particular class interests and always acts in accordance with these interests. The modern champions of the easy money policy take pride in calling themselves unorthodox and slander their adversaries as orthodox, old-fashioned, and reactionary. One of the most eloquent spokesmen of what is called functional finance, Professor Abba Lerner, pretends that in judging fiscal measures he and his friends resort to what is known as the method of science as opposed to scholasticism. The truth is that Lord Keynes, Professor Alvin H. Hansen and Professor Lerner, in their passionate denunciation of interest, are guided by the essence of medieval scholasticism's economic doctrine, the disapprobation of interest. While emphatically asserting that a return to the 19th century's economic policies is out of the question, they are zealously advocating a revival of the methods of the Dark Ages and of the orthodoxy of old canons. The two classes of credit. There is no difference between the ultimate objectives of the anti-interest policies of canon law and the policies recommended by modern interest baiting. But the methods applied are different. Medieval orthodoxy was intent first upon prohibiting by decree interest altogether and later upon limiting the height of interest rates by the so-called usury laws. Modern self-styled unorthodoxy aims at lowering or even abolishing interest by means of credit expansion. Every serious discussion of the problem of credit expansion must start from the distinction between two classes of credit, commodity credit and circulation credit. 
Commodity credit is the transfer of savings from the hands of the original saver into those of the entrepreneurs who plan to use these funds in production. The original saver has saved money by not consuming what he could have consumed by spending it for consumption. He transfers purchasing power to the debtor and thus enables the latter to buy these non-consumed commodities for use in further production. Thus the amount of commodity credit is strictly limited by the amount of saving, i.e., abstention from consumption. Additional credit can only be granted to the extent that additional savings have been accumulated. The whole process does not affect the purchasing power of the monetary unit. Circulation credit is credit granted out of funds especially created for this purpose by the banks. In order to grant a loan, the bank prints banknotes or credits the debtor on a deposit account. It is creation of credit out of nothing. It is tantamount to the creation of fiat money, to undisguised, manifest inflation. It increases the amount of money substitutes, of things which are taken and spent by the public in the same way in which they deal with money proper. It increases the buying power of the debtors. The debtors enter the market of factors of production with an additional demand, which would not have existed except for the creation of such banknotes and deposits. This additional demand brings about a general tendency toward a rise in commodity prices and wage rates. While the quantity of commodity credit is rigidly fixed by the amount of capital accumulated by previous saving, the quantity of circulation credit depends on the conduct of the bank's business. Commodity credit cannot be expanded, but circulation credit can. Where there is no circulation credit, a bank can only increase its lending to the extent that the savers have entrusted it with more deposits. Where there is circulation credit, a bank can expand its lending by what is, curiously enough, called being more liberal. Credit expansion not only brings about an inextricable tendency for commodity prices and wage rates to rise it also affects the market rate of interest. As it represents an additional quantity of money offered for loans, it generates a tendency for interest rates to drop below the height they would have reached on a loan market not manipulated by credit expansion. It owes its popularity with quacks and cranks not only to the inflationary rise in prices and wage rates which it engenders, but no less to its short-run effect of lowering interest rates. It is today the main tool of policies aiming at cheap or easy money. The function of prices, wage rates, and interest rates. The rate of interest is a market phenomenon. In the market economy it is the structure of prices, wage rates, and interest rates, as determined by the market, that directs the activities of the entrepreneurs toward those lines in which they satisfy the wants of the consumers in the best possible and cheapest way. The prices of the material factors of production, wage rates, and interest rates on the one hand and the anticipated future prices of the consumer's goods on the other hand are the items that enter into the planning businessman's calculations. The result of these calculations shows the businessman whether or not a definite project will pay. If the market data underlying his calculations are falsified by the interference of the government, the result must be misleading. Diluted by an arithmetical operation with illusory figures, the entrepreneurs embark upon the realization of projects that are at variance with the most urgent desires of consumers. The disagreement of the consumers becomes manifest when the products of capital malinvestment reach the market and cannot be sold at satisfactory prices. Then, there appears what is called bad business. If, on a market not hampered by government tampering with the market data, the examination of a definite project shows its unprofitability, it is proved that under the given state of affairs the consumers prefer the execution of other projects. The fact that a definite business venture is not profitable means that the consumers, 
in buying its products, are not ready to reimburse entrepreneurs for the prices of the complementary factors of production required, while on the other hand, in buying other products, they are ready to reimburse entrepreneurs for the prices of the same factors. Thus the sovereign consumers express their wishes and force business to adjust its activities to the satisfaction of those wants which they consider the most urgent. The consumers thus bring about a tendency for profitable industries to expand and for unprofitable ones to shrink. It is permissible to say that what proximately prevents the execution of certain projects is the state of prices, wage rates, and interest rates. It is a serious blunder to believe that if only these items were lower, production activities could be expanded. What limits the size of production is the scarcity of the factors of production. Prices, wage rates, and interest rates are only indices expressive of the degree of this scarcity. They are pointers, as it were. Through these market phenomena, society sends out a warning to the entrepreneurs planning a definite project, don't touch this factor of production, it is earmarked for the satisfaction of another, more urgent need. The expansionists, as the champions of inflation style themselves today, see in the rate of interest nothing but an obstacle to the expansion of production. If they were consistent, they would have to look in the same way at the prices of the material factors of production and at wage rates. A government decree cutting down wage rates to 50% of those on the unhampered labor market would likewise give to certain projects, which do not appear profitable in a calculation based on the actual market data, the appearance of profitability. There is no more sense in the assertion that the height of interest rates prevents a further expansion of production than in the assertion that the height of wage rates brings about these effects. The fact that the expansionists apply this kind of fallacious argumentation only to interest rates and not also to the prices of primary commodities and to the prices of labor is the proof that they are guided by emotions and passions and not by cool reasoning. They are driven by resentment. They envy what they believe is the rich man's take. They are unaware of the fact that in attacking interest they are attacking the broad masses of savers, bondholders, and beneficiaries of insurance policies. The effects of politically lowered interest rates. The expansionists are quite right in asserting that credit expansion succeeds in bringing about booming business. They are mistaken only in ignoring the fact that such an artificial prosperity cannot last and must inextricably lead to a slump, a general depression. If the market rate of interest is reduced by credit expansion, many projects which were previously deemed unprofitable get the appearance of profitability. The entrepreneur who embarks upon their execution must, however, very soon discover that his calculation was based on erroneous assumptions. He has reckoned with those prices of the factors of production which corresponded to market conditions as they were on the eve of the credit expansion. But now, as a result of credit expansion, these prices have risen. The project no longer appears so promising as before. The businessman's funds are not sufficient for the purchase of the required factors of production. He would be forced to discontinue the pursuit of his plans if the credit expansion were not to continue. However, as the banks do not stop expanding credit and providing business with easy money, the entrepreneurs see no cause to worry. They borrow more and more. Prices and wage rates boom. Everybody feels happy and is convinced that now finally mankind has overcome forever the gloomy state of scarcity and reached everlasting prosperity. In fact, all this amazing wealth is fragile, a castle built on the sands of illusion. It cannot last. There is no means to substitute banknotes and deposits for non-existing capital goods. Lord Keynes, in a poetical mood, asserted that credit expansion has performed the miracle, 
of turning a stone into bread one but this miracle, on closer examination, appears no less questionable than the tricks of Indian fakirs. There are only two alternatives. 1. The expanding banks may stubbornly cling to their expansionist policies and never stop providing the money business needs in order to go on in spite of the inflationary rise in production costs. They are intent upon satisfying the ever-increasing demand for credit. The more credit business demands, the more it gets. Prices and wage rates skyrocket. The quantity of banknotes and deposits increases beyond all measure. Finally, the public becomes aware of what is happening. People realize that there will be no end to the issue of more and more money substitutes that prices will consequently rise at an accelerated pace. They comprehend that under such a state of affairs it is detrimental to keep cash. In order to prevent being victimized by the progressing drop in money's purchasing power, they rush to buy commodities, no matter what their prices may be and whether or not they need them. They prefer everything else to money. They arrange what in 1923 in Germany, when the Reich set the classical example for the policy of endless credit expansion, was called Dieflucht in Dysack word, the flight into real values. The whole currency system breaks down. Its unit's purchasing power dwindles to zero. People resort to barter or to the use of another type of foreign or domestic money. The crisis emerges. The other alternative is that the banks or the monetary authorities become aware of the dangers involved in endless credit expansion before the common man does. They stop, of their own accord, any further addition to the quantity of banknotes and deposits. They no longer satisfy the business applications for additional credits. Then the panic breaks out. Interest rates jump to an excessive level, because many firms badly need money in order to avoid bankruptcy. Prices drop suddenly, as distressed firms try to obtain cash by throwing inventories on the market dirt cheap. Production activities shrink, workers are discharged. Thus, credit expansion unavoidably results in the economic crisis. In either of the two alternatives, the artificial boom is doomed. In the long run, it must collapse. The short-run effect, the period of prosperity, may last sometimes several years. While it lasts, the authorities, the expanding banks and their public relations agencies arrogantly defy the warnings of the economists and pride themselves on the manifest success of their policies. But when the bitter end comes, they wash their hands of it. The artificial prosperity cannot last because the lowering of the rate of interest, purely technical as it was and not corresponding to the real state of the market data, has misled entrepreneurial calculations. It has created the illusion that certain projects offer the chances of profitability when, in fact, the available supply of factors of production was not sufficient for their execution. Diluted by false reckoning, businessmen have expanded their activities beyond the limits drawn by the state of society's wealth. They have underrated the degree of the scarcity of factors of production and overtaxed their capacity to produce. In short, they have squandered scarce capital goods by malinvestment. The whole entrepreneurial class is, as it were, in the position of a master builder whose task it is to construct a building out of a limited supply of building materials. If this man overestimates the quantity of the available supply, he drafts a plan for the execution of which the means at his disposal are not sufficient. He overbuilds the groundwork and the foundations and discovers only later, in the progress of the construction, that he lacks the material needed for the completion of the structure. This belated discovery does not create our master builder's plight. It merely discloses errors committed in the past. 
it brushes away illusions and forces him to face stark reality. There is need to stress this point, because the public, always in search of a scapegoat, is as a rule ready to blame the monetary authorities and the banks for the outbreak of the crisis. They are guilty, it is asserted, because in stopping the further expansion of credit, they have produced a deflationary pressure on trade. Now, the monetary authorities and the banks were certainly responsible for the orgies of credit expansion and the resulting boom, although public opinion, which always approves such inflationary ventures wholeheartedly, should not forget that the fault rests not alone with others. The crisis is not an outgrowth of the abandonment of the expansionist policy. It is the inextricable and unavoidable aftermath of this policy. The question is only whether one should continue expansionism until the final collapse of the whole monetary and credit system or whether one should stop at an earlier date. The sooner one stops, the less grievous are the damages inflicted and the losses suffered. Public opinion is utterly wrong in its appraisal of the phases of the trade cycle. The artificial boom is not prosperity, but the deceptive appearance of good business. Its illusions lead people astray and cause malinvestment and the consumption of unreal apparent gains which amount to virtual consumption of capital. The depression is the necessary process of readjusting the structure of business activities to the real state of the market data, i.e., the supply of capital goods and the valuations of the public. The depression is thus the first step on the return to normal conditions, the beginning of recovery and the foundation of real prosperity based on the solid production of goods and not on the sands of credit expansion. Additional credit is sound in the market economy only to the extent that it is evoked by an increase in the public savings and the resulting increase in the amount of commodity credit. Then, it is the public's conduct that provides the means needed for additional investment. If the public does not provide these means, they cannot be conjured up by the magic of banking tricks. The rate of interest, as it is determined on a loan market not manipulated by an easy money policy, is expressive of the people's readiness to withhold from current consumption a part of the income really earned and to devote it to a further expansion of business. It provides the businessman reliable guidance in determining how far he may go in expanding investment, what projects are in compliance with the true size of saving and capital accumulation and what are not. The policy of artificially lowering the rate of interest below its potential market height seduces the entrepreneurs to embark upon certain projects of which the public does not approve. In the market economy, each member of society has his share in determining the amount of additional investment. There is no means of fooling the public all of the time by tampering with the rate of interest. Sooner or later, the public's disapproval of a policy of overexpansion takes effect. Then the airy structure of the artificial prosperity collapses. Interest is not a product of the machinations of rugged exploiters. The discount of future goods as against present goods is an eternal category of human action and cannot be abolished by bureaucratic measures. As long as there are people who prefer one apple available today to two apples available in 25 years, there will be interest. It does not matter whether society is organized on the basis of private ownership of the means of production, viz, capitalism, or on the basis of public ownership, viz, socialism or communism. For the conduct of affairs by a totalitarian government, interest, the different valuation of present and of future goods, plays the same role it plays under capitalism. Of course, in a socialist economy, the people are deprived of any means to make their own value judgments prevail and only the government's value judgments count. A dictator does not bother whether or not the masses approve of his decision of how much to devote for current consumption and how much for additional investment.
If the dictator invests more and thus curtails the means available for current consumption, the people must eat less and hold their tongues. No crisis emerges, because the subjects have no opportunity to utter their dissatisfaction. But in the market economy, with its economic democracy, the consumers are supreme. Their buying or abstention from buying creates entrepreneurial profit or loss. It is the ultimate yardstick of business activities. The inevitable ending. It is essential to realize that what makes the economic crisis emerge is the public's disapproval of the expansionist ventures made possible by the manipulation of the rate of interest. The collapse of the house of cards is a manifestation of the democratic process of the market. It is vain to object that the public favors the policy of cheap money. The masses are misled by the assertions of the pseudo-experts that cheap money can make them prosperous at no expense whatever. They do not realize that investment can be expanded only to the extent that more capital is accumulated by savings. They are deceived by the fairy tales of monetary cranks from John Law down to Major C.H. Douglas. Yet, what counts in reality is not fairy tales, but people's conduct. If men are not prepared to save more by cutting down their current consumption, the means for a substantial expansion of investment are lacking. These means cannot be provided by printing banknotes or by loans on the bank books. In discussing the situation as it developed under the expansionist pressure on trade created by years of cheap interest rates policy, one must be fully aware of the fact that the termination of this policy will make visible the havoc it has spread. The incorrigible inflationists will cry out against alleged deflation and will advertise again their patent medicine, inflation, rebaptizing it redeflation. What generates the evils is the expansionist policy. Its termination only makes the evils visible. This termination must at any rate come sooner or later, and the later it comes, the more severe are the damages which the artificial boom has caused. As things are now, after a long period of artificially low interest rates, the question is not how to avoid the hardships of the process of recovery altogether, but how to reduce them to a minimum. If one does not terminate the expansionist policy in time by a return to balanced budgets, by abstaining from government borrowing from the commercial banks and by letting the market determine the height of interest rates, one chooses the German way of 1923. <laughs> See, that's what I'm Cheap money. Cheap money also they call soft money also. I was watching that German program. I wasn't watching, I was driving, but I listened to it. And uh, when I got home, I continue to listen to it because it was very interesting to me about what was going on in Germany. And they were showing how these businessmen, real estate, how they just buying up everything now. You know, you can see it here in these big cities like Detroit and some of these other cities, San Francisco, you know, where where, where you see the people with the money is coming back into the city and buying up a lot of these old housing areas that was like projects or where low income people live. See, while a lot of these places where low-income people live is like prime real estate. But see, at the time, you know, they ain't know this. You know, they was putting up, they was putting all these low-income people in these big old giant high rises and uh and 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 where they just call them projects and PJs and all that kind of stuff like that. Well, the same thing was going on in England and Germany. In the inner city, see, at one time the rich folks they wanted to move out to the suburbs. Now the rich folks want to move back into the city. So this is where all the money is concentrated now. All the money is being concentrated in the city. And in order, in order to get to get some of this prime real estate that they, 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 they didn't let low income people live on and abuse for all these years, now they gotta try to take this thing back. 
And that's what and that's what they're doing right now is that's like I say I really see the, what's going on in San Francisco now where, you know, you got you got uh, the tech folks coming in, buying up all the stuff and all the poor folks moved out. They got to move out back way out to the suburbs. Same thing in New York. Now, looking at New York, all them high rises in New York, all them, pro them projects is on prime real estate by that water. You got all the low income people moving in there. Now they're trying to close some of them projects down, right? Get them poor people out there where they can fix them buildings up and sell them buildings to rich folks. Like in England, same thing in England, what they did in England. The show was saying, showing the same thing in England. Prime real estate, these big old high rises where all these poor people or low income people was living. The people came back, came in and started buying all that property up and kicking them people out, moving them, moving to the outskirts of the city. And a lot of folks who was buying some of them prime real estate didn't even live in England. They weren't even English citizens. But they was taking their money and they was buying some of the high-rise properties and weren't even living there. But it was pushing the economy up. Same thing in Germany. In Germany, you got these investors just going up, buying these urban, these, I'm just going to sell them urban, I'm just, these city communities or these low-income communities and kicking folks out of their house and raising the rent up. And those people can't afford to live there, so it's pushing the people out. But at the same time, how is they doing this? Where is it getting money in into this economy? So this is why they say it's a bust. And that's because, like I said, if y'all listen to that previous show, that my previous podcast I talked about on the Federal Reserve, it's gonna tell y'all a little about, especially about 2008, what the Feds did. You know, how to how you know how they how, how they how they did this interest, how these little tools they put in place, these zero percent interest rate. So y'all think it's good the zero percent interest rate where you can go out here and get a loan at zero percent, pay on a car for 72 months on the car. Y'all think that's good. It does stimulate the economy because they want you guys to buy. They want you to get in debt. You know, they want you to have all this overhead that you can't afford that you'll never get out of debt on. But see, at the, at the same time, why they giving the little people, <clears throat> they giving the little people option to go buy these things. The rich people, the rich these big these business these business moguls like that boy there on that show watching Germany, they was using what you call cheap money. They was borrowing cheap money or soft money from the banks and they was turning around and they was procuring property at zero percent interest. But for instance, I give you I give you a good for instance. I went to the bank a few months ago, and you know, I did just, just out of BS. They gave me I borrowed fifteen thousand dollars just by signing my signature at seventy percent interest for five years. Zero percent seven percent interest. Five year loan, fifteen thousand dollars. I gave gave they gave me just by signing my signature. Now here's a stipulation. It was they say that you can do anything you want with this money, but you can't invest. Now they're telling me now I couldn't invest none of that fifteen thousand dollars. They pretty much telling me that I got to spend that fifteen thousand dollars. I couldn't make any money out of that fifteen thousand dollars, right? So what I did was I kept that. I kept that loan for probably about not even a month, and I gave that fifteen thousand dollars back to them. Right, I just want to see could I do it. Get that fifteen thousand dollars back to him, so I ain't got. I don't have any debt. See, I don't have no debt. I have zero debt at all. But see, on the flip side, I'm I'm, I'm looking at this show on YouTube about this businessman in Germany. Right, what what they do is he needed he he I think he's something like he needed like five hundred million dollars, right, to buy this company. So what he what he what he did was he went to the bank. He put up I think like one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. I mean, $125 million. He borrowed the rest from the bank. Now, the bank loaned him that money with 0% interest to a businessman. Now, 
he took the money and he bought another business. He took over another business. He bought another business. But yet, remember now, they told me when I borrowed 15000 that I can do anything I want with the money, but I couldn't invest the money in anything. I couldn't make a profit off the money. See, I had to go out here and buy, I had to, I had to, I had to be like old, uh, 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 dumb poor person. I had to go out and take that $15,000 and go out there and buy a car, or buy a TV, you know, or, or, or buy a couch, or buy some old, some old frivolous crap. I couldn't take that $15,000 in the business. But yet this businessman, right, he took that money, he borrowed that money at 0% interest, bought another company, right? Kept that company, bought a company for $500 million. He only put in $125 million. Bought that company for $500 million. Turned around a year later and sold that company for $3.5 million. And gave the bank back the money that he borrowed them at 0% interest and he made money off of it. Now he's over there in Germany buying up all the real estate and everywhere. That's the same thing like they're doing here. See, these zeros, see what the feds did was with this zero percent interest, they thing was they need to stimulate the economy. And this is the biggest thing I can't tell getting folks head. Y'all got to stop getting out this thing about like the day we're going to listen to this old boy work. He talking about his 401k. He talking, he looking at the stock market. He's worried about the stock market dropping, dropping how much money he going to lose. You know, the, the, the economy is going slow. They got y'all. They got us on this thing looking at TV thinking that the economy is slow because the stock market falls. The economy is slow because people ain't out there spending. So the economy, is, this, this is what they brainwashed us for on, on this money system thing is, folks. The economy is slow because people ain't spending. No, people, the economy don't have to be slow because people ain't spending. The thing is that they, they put this 0% M money in circulations for these businesses to per se stimulate growth and economy by starting businesses, paying employees, but what's going on is these rich people are getting these 0% interest and they're buying up businesses. They're taking that money and they're buying up real estate. They're buying up land. They're they, they building houses. These rich people building all this stuff off that 0% interest money. And then you turn around and you go out there and try to get in one of them houses or one of them high rises that they want to sell y'all. And you're going to at least pay at least 2% interest if you got good credit. Got bad credit and you want to afford they're gonna pay about seven percent interest. But yet these builders then built that property off zero percent interest. This is how these rich folks and these businesses are getting paid. It's not the government or rich people, it's these it's these business moguls are the ones that's getting paid off this cheap money. And then on the video, the white man he even said he was talking to a group of his peers, telling them to tell them that he need them to invest in the business because he said we need to get some of this cheap money. They call it cheap money. It ain't nothing high, soft money, cheap money. They're not hiding it. These businessmen is getting this soft money, this cheap money from the Federal Reserve at 0% interest, buying up everything. And then gonna turn around and sell, sell it to you for interest. And then when you out there and you stop spending your money trying to think you're gonna save your money, everything's good, I'm gonna try to save my money. And, they, and, and, they, and they're giving you 0.01% interest on your money in the bank. You're not making no money by saving. They don't want you to save your money. When they put that money in the circulation for, for ordinary folks, it's for you to spend that money like you crazy. You ain't supposed to have no savings account. They don't give it to you to save. They give it to you to spend. So the rich folks get out here and they, and they have all these big building projects and they consolidate by buying other people's businesses. As you, like the company that I own, I work for. The company that I work for, they just got sold. 
They just got bought out and consolidated with some European country. They got bought out with cheap money. Some big conglomerate came in and borrowed cheap money from the banks, bought my company and bought the other company that consolidated us at no cost to them. And they probably going to keep both our companies for a little while, maybe a year or two. And then they're going to sell us off to somebody else and make a profit and pay the bank off. That's how these rich people making this money off this cheap money. But see, but you can take advantage of this cheap money too. You see what I'm saying? You can take advantage of this cheap money too if you got good credit. If you got good credit and you got a plan. See like that $15,000 $15, that I had? That I just got just all the humbug of a signature? At the time when I bought that money, I didn't know anything about cheap money. When I bought that money, I just did that thing off of humbug. I didn't know what I know. I hadn't I hadn't studied up on cheap money. I hadn't seen that YouTube video. Because if I had, I wouldn't have paid that $15,000 back quick. What I did was I took that $15,000, right? And I would have invested it. Shit, dang, I know what the hell I did with it. It's cash. I took the cash out and invested it. Made, made my money back. Gave, gave me that $15,000 back after six months. And made a little profit off of it. That's going out out of made with my money just sitting in the bank. But see, but now I know that I got my credit is good enough. Well, I can go into any bank right now. I can go back to that bank right now, right? And I and I can get me another loan just off my signature. But yet this time it won't be seven percent interest. It'd be a whole lot less than seven percent interest. But I'm telling y'all about these businesses, how these businesses and how the Fed stimulate the economy with this cheap money at zero percent interest. How they buy up everything. That's how they build up all these these uh, housing complexes around. These are they take like, farmland, and you know where I'm at is horse country. Now the, all the horses is gone. They're taking all the all, all the horse plots and 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 clearing them and making houses. And I wonder myself, who the hell gonna buy all these damn houses? Where these folks coming to buy these houses? You know you know where the folks come from? Low income people. They they gonna they gonna, they gonna get them housing them people at probably about two to four percent interest. Right, you'll get the people houses, and then some of the some of the people are gonna be so happy to get one of them brand new houses that 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 <coughs> that ain't built worth crap, uh, poor workmanship. Them house, the men, man, them, psh, I hope the house can can withstand a hurricane when it come through. But they gonna get them house on people for two to four percent interest. They gonna give it to them, and the, and they may tack on the balloon mortgage. See that would happen during the subprime. Y'all listen to my thing that I talk about the Federal Reserve. Tell you about the subprime. What happened was, see a lot of people had them balloon mortgages, where you first you first you get in and your mortgage note maybe two percent, but then after four years it may balloon to eight percent, and then after another four years maybe lose twelve percent. See people weren't prepared. See pe people don't look ahead. They get into these mortgages and they say, well. I can get in, I can get in this mortgage at two percent interest, but it's a balloon that's gonna bloom after four years to eight percent. But I'm gonna be in a better financial position, eight percent, so I'll be able to I'll be able to withstand that 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 uh that eight percent increase. But they, they never they never can. They don't get the they, they, they never have fixed because your income's so bad and you like that old shiny thing that what you do is you go ahead and sign that piece of paper, right? For that balloon mortgage, thinking that things gonna get better in the next four years, and knowing that you can't save no money because you couldn't save no money before you bought the house, and that's what they doing all these properties around here. They build up all these because let me tell you something: when you can borrow money at zero percent interest, right, and you can and, and 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 you can pay somebody, right, to build to build you a bunch of houses that you gonna make anywhere from four. From, from four to seven percent interest on when you sell them houses, right? Right? 
you're going to make that money. Because what happens is, because when, when somebody go to the bank to, to, to buy a house, right, you're going to get your money because they're going to borrow money from the bank. And you're going to get all your money in full. So developers going to have their money in full. You ain't you pay 0% interest to have all that building done. Minus minus what you paid pay paid the workers to put it up. You you you'd have made that. You'd have made your money off zero percent interest. You you you'd have paid these people to build a house. You 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 borrow the money for the bank at zero percent interest, pay the people to build a house, pay for all the supplies, zero percent interest, right? People that went to the bank. Then got a loan, a, a, a four, it went from two to seven percent interest, and now 12 the credit is bad. Loan on that house. The bank sends that money directly to you. Now the bank has a debt. So the bank gives it to you. Bank that just gave you a house for zero percent interest. Now the bank then turned around and then sold and then gave a loan to that house for some fool from anywhere from, 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 from anywhere from, from four to twelve percent interest. So the, the bank getting their money. But see, it costs the bank nothing to make the money. Listen to my thing. It costs the bank nothing. Just like when I see so many places where I see all these banks going up. It don't cost the bank no money to build no bank. It costs them nothing. Yeah, y'all got y'all got to look at this thing. This cheap money. This cheap money out here. That's what they say gonna be. It's gonna be another boom. The boom is coming. The boom is always coming. Because you people are so addicted to 0% financing on the car. How the hell are you going to buy a car for 72 months financing on a car? Is you out your mind? 72 you, you going to pay on a car for 72 months? And if you look at that same vehicle, that same vehicle is $72,000. That same car that was <laughs> probably 10 years ago, it probably, uh, probably was about $20,000 or, or maybe $40,000. I was looking look at TV. I looked the other day. I saw that Lincoln. What that Lincoln show is that for Lincoln? A new Lincoln. That twins when Lincoln show is sharp. That thing about eighty nine thousand dollars. I worked at Ford, the same place where they built that Lincoln. I worked in the paint shop in two thousand two. The Lincoln Navigator. You know what the Lincoln Navigator was at that time? Lincoln Lincoln Navigator. Top of the line was probably about fifty thousand dollars. That same thing today is almost ninety thousand dollars. It's the same vehicle, same platform, and the Lincoln and 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 uh, and the Lincoln and Expedition, not the Expedition, yeah, yeah, Lincoln and Expedition. It's the same vehicle, same platform. You just got a little cute, cute stuff on the inside. They charge you all that money for because it's zero percent interest, and it's long, it's longer payment terms. That's where they get you in these long payment terms, and they jack the price up. The vehicle ain't changed. Matter of fact, suppliers are being beaten every day to drive their costs down. These big manufacturers like General Motors and a lot of these people, they beating these manufacturers up to drive their costs to drive their supplier costs down. But yet the vehicle price going up. They ask for cost savings from, from, from their suppliers, but they're not giving the cost savings, transfer the cost savings over to you. You think you're getting a good deal when you go in there and get it at a GM employee discount. You're not getting it at no good deal. The car, the, 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 the car already ain't worth nothing. It ain't worth a hill of beans. It ain't worth nothing. It ain't worth $90,000. But yet you will pay $9,000 for it. It ain't worth that. So you think you're getting a good deal. Oh, I had $9,000 and they gave it to me at, at, at 10% employee discount. I'm getting, I'm getting it for 85. I'm still getting a good deal. You ain't getting a good deal. 
That thing ain't worth that. Then you drive off the car lot and depreciate about fifteen twenty thousand dollars. But everybody, not just these big businessmen, is addicted to this cheap money. We're ordinary people, we're addicted to. We want to. We want to go get a, a refrigerator at zero percent interest. We want. We want to go. Okay, I'm gonna go get a refrigerator. I need a friend. I'm gonna go get a brand new refrigerator. I'm gonna go get a refrigerator, and they're gonna give me zero percent interest for sixty and ninety days, right? If you don't pay that off in sixty and ninety days out in cash, right, you're gonna be hit with a whole lot of interest. Now, see, now they playing the odds game. They know that they know some folks that they, they, some folks they, they don't want to get that loan. Nobody like me because they know I'm gonna pay it off within ninety days, right? Wait for nine days, I'm gonna pay it off. But see, they know a whole lot of folks ain't, and that's where they make their money at. Just like on credit cards, American Express, same thing. You got to pay them right away. You don't pay them right away, they will tear your butt up on that interest. I got American Express. They they don't like me. Can they get their money on time? Every month they get their money on time. Right? They get their money on time. They don't like me. But see, but they know there's a whole lot of folks out there that ain't like me. There's more folks out there that's not like me that like me. And then the folks that they like, them folks who don't pay their bill, who go out there and put two, three thousand dollars on, on, on that dog American Express car at the end of the month when it's due, they ain't got that money. Now they want to pay twenty dollars on it. And now they get in debt. And now you complain about how the credit card companies are sharks, how they are fraud, how they bad. The credit card companies ain't bad. How they bad because you ain't manage your money. Even, even some of these predatory lenders that you call them out here, how you call them bad. Because you went out there and got yourself in trouble and you borrowed money from, 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 from them folks. And now you got to pay them folks back. Now you can't pay them folks back. And now you want to go to somebody to fix your credit. And when you go to some of these credit places, right, to fix your credit, you know, you know what they're fixing your credit with? Cheap money. They're using cheap money to fix you, to bail you out. And then gonna charge you an interest for consolidating your loan. They're using cheap money to pay off all your loans, to consolidate your loans, and then charge you one interest rate. Instead of you having five payments, you got one now, one, one payment with a, one interest rate. But what they did was they, they didn't borrow cheap money. And paid all five of your loans off at zero percent interest to them. Now they turn around and charging you maybe seven percent interest, but they telling you said you got five payments now. You got one payment. Y'all got to know what's going on out here. The feds need to they need to slow the economy down. They need to raise the interest rate. You people need to be because look look if businesses ain't being charged for borrowing money. Right. That means if, if you when you invest your money, you not you getting zero percent cent interest on your money. Right. If the if if, if the bank is loaning zero percent loans out, cheap money out, then that means that you getting cheap money on you not getting no money on your return to investment. The feds need to lower the economy need to be slowed down. People need to learn how to budget their money. You will need all this stuff. I know what y'all say. Well, if you don't, if you don't have all the stories, then people ain't gonna have no jobs. Do we need do we need a brand new damn car every year? Do we need the same car coming out every six months? You got fifty million car makers out there. But I know what you say. All the people got jobs. All the people got to work. That's the whole thing about addiction. They get you addicted to these material things. They get you addicted to this cheap money. Not just the big businessman. To you local folks that get you cheap, they get you addicted to go out and buy a new uh, TV every Super Bowl. They get you addicted to every weekend you got to go shopping. 
They get you addicted to you gotta go buy everything online. They get you addicted to it. And then when they get you addicted to it, now they control you. What you gonna do now? You addicted, you gotta have this kind of stuff. You gotta come get this loan from me. You got it. You can't save no money. Why you need to save money? You need to have all that money in your savings account. You need to start spending some money. You need to stimulate the economy. Ain't that what George Bush said? The economy? George Bush said, Bush said, hey, pay, hey, people. You know, y'all don't worry about nothing. I'm going to give y'all this, this little stimulate money back. Y'all go out and buy yourself a TV. How degrading that is. Y'all go out and spend some money on the economy. Stimulate the economy. That's what, that what Bush said. And them dumb people, y'all did the same thing. Y'all took that little stimulus money, gave y'all, went out there and bought TVs, and then income tax attorney turned around and got it right back from you. You know, Bobby did the same thing, didn't he? Gave a little, a little stimulus to the people. Then income tax attorney turned around and took that little stimulus right back. Gave you money so you can go spend the money with the corporations and get in debt. And then at the end of the year, charge you for that little stimulus money they gave you back at the end of the year. Because everybody is addicted to cheap money. Not just the businessman who's consolidating and buying up everything. Not just the banks who just printing worthless money out and we getting it and and, and, and we doing. Now, like I tell you, then on the last show, I said that I'm all for the Federal Reserve. Because even though the system, even though the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve, I, I think, still do a better job than the government would, than the politicians would. And then the politicians moved so slow. The feds moved quick. 2008, the feds, the Federal Reserve, the International Mutual Fund, they moved quick to stimulate the economy. People, we, we may not like cheap money. I don't like 0% cheap money. But what they did was they moved fast. If a situation in your country happened where the government controlled the money, you think the government can move that fast? You think the government can act as fast as the Federal Reserve? Because I tell y'all, every organism wants to be alive. The Federal Reserve has a mandate to stay alive, to keep their magic show going around the world. But I like their magic show a whole lot better than I like it if the government, if the politicians was in there, if Congress was in there coining money or making policy or trying to stimulate the economy. I think I like the Federal Reserve a little bit more. So that was like my little talk on cheap money. Y'all can take it for whatever it's worth. I, I, I'm just an old dummy over here. A lot of things I say may be wrong, and but that's okay. But I hope what I say kind of make y'all think. Take a little bit, okay, about this cheap money. And I want y'all to do a little more deep dive into it. And let me tell you something. Don't let the media scare y'all. say, oh, the economy is slowing down. It's going to be another crash. They like it when you fear. <laughs> the only thing to fear is fear itself. Like when you fear, because when you fear, that's when they got you. But see, you fear because see, you you went out and you accumulated all this resources, all these material stuff. That's why you fear, because you fear I'm not gonna have enough food in my refrigerator if things hit the fan. I'm not gonna have a roof over my head if things gonna hit the fan. I'm not gonna be able to put gas in my car. All these materialistic things that then got y'all hooked on. So one thing I'm saying is that. You know, the system that we have isn't perfect, nowhere near, but it's a system that they ain't got everybody to, addicted to. The ones who know about it, know about it. But the ones who play in the game, hey, you're addicted to it. So look at I'm going to go in this little pod talk. So whenever y'all, like I tell y'all, man, look, y'all support y'all local uh, cigar lounges. You know, y'all can go on Holtz, you know, JR and 
and CIA International and Corona and get your little cigar discounts. Ain't nothing wrong with that. But shop local. Stimulate the local economy, local business man in your area. Like I buy my cigars at Ron Cigar Emporium, top of the world. That's my home spot. When I go out of town, I make sure that I, I, I support the local cigar spots. But let me tell you something. When it all boils down to it, if you want to just sit down there, have a good conversation with some good folks, a good cigar lounge is hard to beat. Hard to beat, man. So look here. I'm going to get on out of here. And I'm going to get out of here like I always got here, like I always tell y'all. In life, y'all take care of everybody. But more importantly, y'all take care of yourself first. All right now.